Hi, Peter Bregman here. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that registration for a very special program, the Bregman Leadership Intensive, is now open. It's unlike any leadership program you've been to before. We don't talk about leadership in the intensive. We actually engage in experiences that bring out the best of who you can be as a leader. We uncover blind spots that you may have, and in it, you will learn how to get around those blind spots in order to remove the obstacles that prevent you from contributing your maximum potential. To apply and see if you're the right fit, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. And you can learn more about the intensive there. We only have 20 spots open and we're filling up. So don't hesitate to apply now. That's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to apply for the intensive today. That's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I'm delighted to have with us today on the Bregman Leadership Podcast, Steve Denning. I am a longtime follower of Steve's work. Um, I read some early books that he'd written about story and narrative. One of them was The Secret Language of Leadership, How Leaders Inspire Action Through Narrative. Steve has come out with a new book called The Age of Agile, How Smart Companies Are Transforming the Way Work Gets Done. There's a lot of talk about Agile. It used to be uh, settled in the realm of technology companies. It's breaking out uh, into broader organizations, and leaders all over should understand the concept of Agile and how it's applied in organizations. And I'm delighted that Steve has agreed to join us on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Steve, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Steve, you uh, made your own kind of agile shift from all of this work that you had done around communication and storytelling and narrative and and the way that leaders inspire through communication to to writing about agile and and the you know the age of agile and the importance of agile and how it's being used in organizations and I'm curious about the story behind your shift in moving from where your focus was to now the focus on on agile management well when i um, left the world bank people were keen to hear how had i managed to launch a strategic shift in what is known as the world's most change resistant organization and what was the strategic shift that you that you led there from what to what that was the idea that the world bank as an organization that lent money to reduce global poverty, that it should be sharing its knowledge as well as lending money. And that should be a primary focus. And uh, that was embraced by the organization and it became a huge strategic shift. And uh, people were kind of amazed because presidents had come to the World Bank and left, were unable to make even a slight scratch on it. And so it was known as the uh, as a very difficult organization to change. So when I was able to affect this change. People said, well, how did you do it? And I had to confess that I've been using the ancient art of storytelling for some very modern purposes. And people said, well, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Why don't you come and teach us about this strange idea? And so I 
And when I left the World Bank in 2000, I spent the next eight, 10 years wandering around the Fortune 500, teaching them how to use the power of storytelling to embrace strange new ideas. And of course, there's a lot of work that's come out of that now with sort of derived maybe from, from the first work that you were doing around how to engage people, not just intellectually and with facts, but emotionally and with narrative to, to kind of move them both psychologically and actually. I mean, there was a lot of talk about emotional intelligence, but uh, when you read all those books and looked for what exactly you're meant to do 9 a.m. Monday morning when you're facing a group of disgruntled employees and you're about to explain some change that is going to turn their lives upside down. What do you do to actually get them not only to understand and accept the idea, but to embrace it and become champions of it? And those books, those studies uh, shed no light on that particular issue. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I, I wrote a book on emotional courage, the willingness to feel things. And part of what I've talked about is the fact that there's never been a more dry intellectual conversation about anything as there is about emotional intelligence, that, it's, that it actually does not engage the emotions at all, that conversation. So what you're saying is your storytelling was a way around that to actually engage the emotions. Well, it was not a way around it. It was a way, a way. to it. Through the heart of it. Right, through the heart of it. I mean, Lance Secretan's book called Inspire was a typical example. Which, um, So with a title like Inspire, uh, you think, well, I'm going to learn how to inspire people. So you're reading this book, and it goes on and on. And uh, you keep waiting for the section that's going to tell you how to inspire. And it's, it's about becoming emotionally intelligent and so on and so on. But no clue on how you're going to inspire. But finally, you get there, page 166, <laughs> how to inspire people. And it says, well, if you haven't already grasped how to inspire people, you haven't grasped emotional intelligence. But I suggest you go back and reread the first 160 <laughs> pages. So that was typically what uh, these books uh, were like. But the, the key issue, the key question, the absolute heart of the matter was missing. It was uh, exciting for organizations because they, uh, they initially back in 2000, they thought this idea is bananas, storytelling. I mean, it was not at all popular, uh, but people were desperate to change. And uh, so they they tried it out. And lo and behold, it actually worked. So I this very successful practice coaching organizations how to inspire change. But a funny thing happened after five, eight years of this is that I noticed that the changes didn't stick. That uh, you'd launched the change and it was very successful and the CEO loved it and there was a big program and, and then I'd come back after a few years and nothing. And what happened? Oh, well, the CEO left or there was a budget crunch and we decided to cancel that. And uh, uh, it was always a different reason, but um, the change didn't stick. So in 2008, I started to look into, well, why is this so? Uh, is there any sign of intelligent life on the planet uh, where, where organizations don't embrace an, a good idea and then throw it away five minutes later? And so I was writing a book on high-performance teams and the theory of, of high-performance teams in general management literature I and mean, all the books, uh, Richard Hackman and everyone 
said high performance teams are accidents. The stars have to be aligned, the weather has to be right, it has to have some accidental combination of people, and if you have all of those things, uh, everything is aligned, then you might have a high performance team. But otherwise, you will have good teams, but you will not have teams that really excite people. These are accidental, they're very rare, and so I started to look into that. So I started asking people, do you know of one? (laughs) Have you ever had that kind of experience? And lo and behold, I found that almost everyone had had that kind of experience at some point in their life, working in a team that was amazing, that people were all on the same page, everyone on the same wavelength, everyone was excited, they knew where they were heading, everyone was collaborating, and they did wonders. Almost everyone, sometimes it took a little prodding, uh, had had that kind of experience. It wasn't where they were working right now, but they, they, they all remembered knew, it. They all knew what I was talking about. So this wasn't rare. This and this wasn't something. I knew. This was something that was quite pervasive. So then I started to ask people, "What well, are you currently?" <laughs> I talked to the people who are currently in that kind of experience, and most of those people were in software development. And I paid no attention to them because I knew they knew nothing about management. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I mean, software developers were the worst managed part of any organization. And we knew that we're not going to learn anything about management from them. So I paid no attention. Uh, but I kept running across them so much that I said, I better start looking into this. And uh, yeah, these people had actually... Uh, figured out a way that generated high-performance teams on a on a consistent basis uh, over and over again. So I thought, well, this is amazing because nobody knows about this. Nobody in general management knows about it. And in uh, software development, everyone knows about it. But in general management, nobody knows. So the world needs to know about this idea. And uh, if I said that if there was a Nobel Prize for management, which there isn't, and if there are justice in the world, which there isn't, then uh, people who invented this stuff would deserve the Nobel Prize for management. Um, it, this is a big idea. So I wrote my book, um, Leader's Guide to Radical Management. At that point, uh, agile was a rather contested term, so I called it radical management. And I thought, well, this, this book is going to uh, transform the world. And it had two kinds of receptions. One reception was in software development, where people said, yay, this is fantastic. Finally, we're getting some recognition for what we're doing. But in general management, people said, this is ridiculous. You can't run a big organization like this. It might be good for startups or those uh, crazy software developers or little firms. uh, But it's not something to run a big organization. You want to run a big organization, you have to have bureaucracy. It has to be top down. That's the only way several thousand years of running armies and everything else has shown of that. So this stuff you're talking about is nonsense. I said, well, just you wait. And that's and so now you have the age of agile, which really talks about you use Microsoft as a big example, but talking about agile at scale. So let's shoot through a couple of these questions really fast to just give listeners a sense of first, you know, what is agile? Give us a sentence or two. And what is agile? Well, in its essence, it's a mindset. Agile is mindset. That's the simplest definition. It's a different way of understanding and interacting with the world. And what um, way is that? What kind of a mindset is it? 
it has three principal elements. First of all, an obsession with delivering value to customer ahead of everything else. The primary focus of everything in the organization is delivering more value to customer, creating more value to customer. Second element is to do all work to the extent possible in small teams, working in short cycles, self-organizing teams, uh, getting feedback from customers at the end of each short cycle and proceeding to the next uh, short cycle. And the third element is that the organization functions as a network, not a top-down uh, pyramid, but a fluid network where ideas can flow horizontally and upwards as well as downwards. Those three elements are the crucial elements of the agile mindset, which we see in successful organizations implementing these ideas. So one of the things that you could imagine very, very quickly, if you have small teams focused on customers in a network, is that you know if it happens to work really smoothly and in coordination and collective alignment, could be awesome. And if there wasn't some really strong pressures to create collective alignment, could be also really chaotic. Like if you have lots of teams working on different problems, prioritizing their own their own kind of customer issues and and not necessarily taking into account the bigger picture of the organization, then you've then you've taken the problem of functional silos and you've multiplied it by as many small teams as as you can have. So what do you do? What does an organization do to effectively harness the power of this agile team and lots and lots of small teams without um, tumbling into chaos? Well, uh, first of all, you have this crystal clear focus on delivering value for customers. And uh, so that everyone in the organization has a clear line of sight to the person for whom the work is being done. And if they don't have that, they should be asking, why am I doing this work? Makes no sense. Um, the teams themselves need to be aligned with this goal and within the framework of strategies for the whole organization. So it's uh, each team, in a sense, has a customer-oriented goal and knows what that goal is. And this is reviewed from time to time. Uh, different firms have different cadences, but uh, and so if you're in you're in a bank and the top management finds that the self-organizing team has decided to create a restaurant for the bank, um, uh, the top management might decide that that is a great idea and uh, decide to put all the funding and everything that would be necessary to create a, a restaurant. But they might also say, well. Uh, this is a bank, not a restaurant, and so that's an interesting idea, but we're not actually going to resource that at this point, and we'll put it on a back burner at the time when we want to open a restaurant. And so there are processes for making sure that the creativity of staff is actually harnessed for organizational goals, customer-related organizational goals. And you talk about this in the book, that flattening the hierarchy is not the answer, that that you, you need a hierarchy still in the context of these teams to keep people on board. Because I could imagine, and this is the challenge of just focusing on the customer, that everybody has different views. And, and by the way, all the big banks have, you know, on a certain floor, 
have in effect a restaurant where they serve their top clients some really delicious food as they're wooing them. And so you could say, hey, that's a great idea and we should do it more broadly and we should attract all these customers. But they don't, you know, if, if you're on a team developing software, you don't necessarily have the focus on the strategic business objectives as much as you do on the particular technological objectives of of the software that you're developing or the particular code that you're creating or the individual problem you're solving for the organization so your view is that in it in it sounds like as you as you looked at teams that were really uh, as you took, looked at organizations that really harnessed agile teams effectively, teams that were small teams focused on the customer and and really enmeshed in a productive network, that um, they needed really strong direction from the top and a strong hierarchical uh, foundation or construct to ensure the alignment of all of these individual teams? Well, there are two kinds of changes, actually, two kinds of goals, I mean, two kinds of adjustments. One is if you're proposing something new that it's within the framework of what you're currently doing, an improvement of what you're currently doing, then Jeff Bezos at Amazon, I think, has the right idea by saying there should be multiple paths to yes. You should not be dependent on certainly not on a chain of 20 people going up the hierarchy to get approval for that idea. You should not be able to get approval from your boss and if he doesn't agree or she doesn't agree, you find 20 other people who would agree that, uh, that that improvement is worth working on and if you can find one of those then you get resources and you work on it. So you make it very easy to make improvements to existing things but if you're doing something that is a irreversible shift like launching a restaurant chain in the bank uh, <laughs> uh, that is something that the top management should uh, and jeff bezos calls him the the chief slowdown officer in other words we should stop and think before we make irreversible changes and we might decide to make it or we might decide not to make it but we uh, we are going to make that decision thoughtfully and with the top management involved in making irreversible decisions. And so he gives uh, some, some good examples of how that actually functions. I mean, when the, um, when the Kindle uh, was put forward, this was a, a new kind of business. Amazon had never been in hardware and most of the board uh, because this got to the board, said this is a bad idea. Amazon has no background in hardware. It is only done software. It, this idea is bound to fail. And Jeff Bessel said, well, that may be true, but our future lies in mastering hardware. We will, our future will be very limited if we only manage software. So we are going to do this and we will treat it as a learning experience. We will learn how to do hardware. And they were both right. <laughs> Kindle failed <laughs> and, and the Fire Phone was an even worse disaster. But in the process, Amazon learned how to do hardware. And so now it has Alexa and it's dominating the voice operated hardware sector. 
And so, I'm also going to argue a little bit with the fact that the Kindle failed because every member of my family still has a Kindle, as do I, and I read on it every night. So, I, And I'm still on the black and white Kindle because I don't want to be distracted by the multitasking of an iPad. So I kind of like that they took that risk. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. I had a Kindle for a long while. and But when I say it failed, it failed commercially. Right. In other words, the goals that they had for the Kindle, they never met. So it was... Uh, it certainly paved the way for their book business and all the rest. But uh, so they learned a tremendous amount in, in, in building the Kindle and it paved. So he, that was a kind of decision that was taken at the top of the organization. It was a risky decision, uh, but they used it as a learning experience. Amazon is a company that has been more successful than any other company in launching new businesses because it, it is very easy for teams to make a a small change of improve an existing thing, but decision to change direction or something irreversible goes to the top. And when you look at what Amazon management does, they spend very little time on the things that most top management spend their time on. Because in Amazon, the teams themselves have their own charter. They have their own client customer oriented goal. They know what they're meant to be doing. And they can get on with it and they can get more resources if they have better ideas to do it. Well, I'm curious when you look at the Amazon situation and also, you know, maybe Microsoft, if you want to share that story. But I'm curious about what advice you have for leaders who would like to leverage these agile teams. Like what skills do we need in order to really effectively support an agile team or nurture a, a group of agile teams in an organization? And also, what are some of the pitfalls that we might face? That has a long answer. <laughs> uh, but uh, basically, first of all, the management needs to educate itself. It needs to educate itself as to why organizations have been run the, the way they've run as bureaucracies top down and why Agile has emerged um, in the way that it has. And once they've done that, then they would start to look around their organization and find out which parts of the organization are already implementing Agile. Because at this stage in any organization of any size, there is inevitably some part of the organization, maybe only a team or a couple of teams, but at least uh, some part of the organization is already um, embracing Agile. So the first step would be to find those teams, uh, find out what they're doing, why they're doing it, uh, how they're faring, what obstacles they're facing, and go from there. Because what we have seen is that because this is a paradigm shift, if you like, a fundamental shift in the way an organization is, is funded, top-down examples have uh, almost always failed. And so the, the management needs to embrace a bottom-up movement. So first of all, they have to find the movement. And they, uh, for instance, when the top management in Barclays started looking into this, they looked around and found there were 130,000 people. They found there were a couple of thousand people who were, that were already working in an agile fashion. So they weren't starting from scratch, even though the even though the top management was starting from scratch. And it sounds like also while you don't want a top-heavy hierarchy, you still need to create some structures or clarity of focus that allows these agile teams to have freedom within boundaries. 
And if you have the organization currently sort of operating as a top-down bureaucracy, but you have these underground agile teams working away. As I say, once you've educated yourself on what it's about and you realize that if you, if you give a directive that everyone must be agile, you will fail. Uh, you, and you need to approach it in a much more and uh, delicate fashion. And uh, so you find out uh, who is currently working in this way. And these people are potentially the champions of the future. These are the champions of the future. Uh, they, they, they may need more support and they may need other leaders, but this is the nucleus. These are the, the enthusiasts. These are the people who are doing it despite what the management has told them to do. So these are inherently leader kind of people and they are, you want to build on their enthusiasm and engagement. So find out what blockages they are having um, and you remove those blockages. Uh, And once they're being successful, then you invite other people to go and see what's happening. And they will find that these teams are highly energized and they are delivering faster than the rest of the organization. And so you start to spark a a movement within the organization and you'll probably need some kind of um, cross-functional committee with low-level people and some senior people and some mid-level people and this would be the kind of brains trust that would spearhead this transformation movement across the organization and there'll be many steps along the way and I've written lots of articles about what those steps look like and you can see the journeys of Microsoft and others uh, which has been very successful or the uh, GE experience which has been very unsuccessful and um, you, you learn from those and you hope to follow Microsoft uh, rather than GE. And in, in its most simple sense because it's what I often think about the leader's job is that you set people up with clear direction and then your job is to remove the obstacles that prevent them from contributing their maximum potential. And that the lead, you know, it's not the leader to drag everybody behind them, but it's the leader's role to be a shield, to protect and to uh, look at the things that are getting in their way and remove those. And also inspire other people to embrace, to watch them, embrace it, follow them the change and so and you need the leaders need to exemplify the the kind of behavior I mean this culture is something that can take years to grow and then can be killed in five minutes and uh, so leadership needs to exemplify this the values of this different way of running organizations and everything they do and everything they say give us a sentence or two on what leaders can do to kill it they can declare victory and say we are already agile, we already, and so we don't need any coaches anymore. Those people are removed from the organization, and um, and we will continue in our successful agile journey. Um, that will um, that will pretty much kill the effort, <laughs> and the organization will become bureaucratic, and those agile teams will go underground again. And a couple of years later, people will look around and say, why can't we do anything? Why is it taking, why is everything so slow? So in some ways, the leader's job is to maintain a certain amount of tension between the bar that people are trying to reach and the process of reaching it. It's a, it's a kind of a very, it's a very, very interesting uh, leadership role, which is to say, you know, in, in some ways, people could be criticized for never being satisfied. But what you're saying is, 
really be thoughtful about not being satisfied too easily or too quickly because the tension of not having yet achieved what is possible is a really important tension to keep people inspired and energized. You also need to have a common vocabulary, a common language to talk about things and so that the mindset has a, has a way of communicating itself. And, and what you see is that different organizations uh, have embraced different terminologies, different vocabularies. Uh, but the successful organizations have standardized on a, on a vocabulary, a terminology that helps the organization feel that this is a homegrown kind of thing. This is not something imposed on the organization. It's like language. The English language isn't imposed on us. Um, we actually uh, use it um, and we can adapt it and we can explore it and we can change it. But it's, it's, it's a very useful thing. And it's that sense that the vocabulary that the organization decides to embrace is, is a way in which the mindset can make itself felt. I mean, people sometimes say, well, a mindset is a very hazy kind of notion. And how can you run an organization on a mindset? But in fact, I mean, the big changes, historical changes have come through changes in mindset whether it's the scientific revolution or the um, revolution in astronomy or the enlightenment or even scientific management, these were changes in mindset. And mindset is a very powerful thing once it, um, a whole group of people decide to embrace it and start thinking and interacting with the world in a different way. But of course, if people are entrenched and stuck in the old mindset, then it can take um, a very long time for the change to actually happen. I mean, the, the core idea of Agile was articulated by Peter Drucker in 1954 uh, when he said that the, there is only one valid purpose for a corporation to create a customer. That is the central idea of Agile. And corporate corporate world basically ignored that um, for 50 years and instead <laughs> did all sorts of other things. And in the 21st century, uh, it became apparent that the customer was actually in charge of the marketplace. There'd been this enormous power shift from the seller to the buyer, from the producer to the customer. And so Peter Drucker's idea became uh, central. And so you saw that the, the largest and fastest growing firms on the planet were those that embraced this idea. But here we are 65 years after Peter Drucker, and most organizations have still not, at the top level, <laughs> embraced his idea. So you can have brilliant ideas um, that languish for a very long time, uh, even though there is overwhelming evidence that they should be embraced and accepted. But um, when people are entrenched and have financial incentives to keep things the way they are, then you can have very long delays. Copernican revolution in astronomy took a couple of hundred years, so I hope it won't take as long as that, but here we are 65 years after Peter Drucker was still battling. Well, and you've created, you've articulated a really good recipe for making this change in mindset, which is you find the place in the organization where this is already happening, or you help to support it to happen, and then you watch it create results, both in terms of outcomes and in terms of energized people and, and leaders, and then you point to it and you say, hey, everybody else, come here and look at what's happening here, and this is something that we can replicate across the organization. So it's actually, you know, you've, you've articulated a really lovely 
and simple and impactful method for inspiring change in the organization. Find a place where it works, show everybody, and encourage them to go forward with it. I love this book. Steve Denning. The book is The Age of Agile, How Smart Companies Are Transforming the Way Work Gets Done. We've only just touched the surface of this in this conversation, but it's obviously, if you don't know about Agile, it's something to know about because it's both a powerful force that already exists in a lot of organizations, and it's a really smart way of managing work so that it's focused on the customer in a way that really gets the kinds of results that organizations are looking for. So again, I guess as Peter Drucker would say, so organizations can create customers and that everybody can be working towards that goal. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Hi, Peter Bregman here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I want to remind you at the close that we are looking through applications now for the Bregman Leadership Intensive. I would love one of those applications to be you. Please go to the URL bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to learn more and apply for the intensive. It will really develop in an unimaginable way your emotional courage and impact your leadership and your life. Again, we cap it at 20 people, so don't hesitate to apply now. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week.